Well, welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're working our way through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. I said that really fast. Just look up 1689 and you'll find what I'm talking about. At any rate, uh, we're working our way through our Statement of Faith, which um, we use the, we've adopted the 1689 as our Statement of Faith. And uh, it is divided up into chapters. We're on chapter 31, uh, almost at the end of the Confession. We are doing a, uh, a deep dive into uh, the confession as we've gone along here. It's taken us a number of years to get to this point. Um, we will not. We will finish this year before the end of the year, believe me, before the summer we'll finish um, the whole confession. And uh, as we've worked through, obviously we've uh, uh, talked about a number of issues and subjects that are, uh, while not directly uh, referred to in uh, the particular text of that chapter, uh, they are nonetheless subjects about what's contained in the chapter. So we expanded on those and talk about those um, in a more full way. And uh, thus we are talking about heaven and uh, what heaven is like, what it's about, uh, answering questions about heaven. Now, as we work through um, this chapter. So if you recall, the uh, first section of this chapter was uh, uh, basically, well, I should say, the section that we're in now that we're breaking down a little further is the section on the intermittent state. So this is the intermediate state. This intermediate state is the state where your body and your soul are separated. That's what we're talking about when we refer to that. You say, well, I don't know how you can use the word intermediate for intermediate, you know, intermediate state because that's not in the Bible. That's true. Neither is Trinity. Neither is Trinity. It's not in the Bible. Why do we use that word? Because it describes the concept that God is three in one. There is nothing else that describes that concept, so we use the word trinity. Now, intermediate is a word that we know, and usually you would, if you use that word or you've seen that word, it has been in relation to something in between two places. Are you with me? So this is, uh, you're going to take this intermediate step. It means you're going from one place to another place, and there's something in between, and that's the intermediate. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the intermediate time of what happens when you die. Now, that's what we call the intermediate state. This varies significantly from uh, what others believe about what happens when you die. Now, uh, That is not readily apparent always. Okay, now, what do I mean by that? Well, all right. So if we think of the Roman Catholic Church, right, this is an easy one. It's an easy one to go to because, of course, a number of the statements in the Confession, things we've already talked about, were in response to the Roman Catholic teaching on purgatory. But not directly because what they're really doing is saying, here is what will happen, here is what's going to happen, and now we're actually in the section where we're talking about what happens to the righteous uh, when they die. Now, this is important to understand. The Roman Catholics believe that there is a separation of body and soul, that there is an intermediate state. To them, that intermediate state is purgatory. It's purgatory. Now, depending on which pope you go by... <laughs> The Roman Catholics either believe that no one will end up going to hell, except for Satan and his angels, or almost no one will go to hell. In other words, even the worst possible person you can think of, the most evil man that you can think of in history, whoever he is to you, he will not end up in hell, end up in heaven. That's what Roman Catholics have at least believed through some time, some periods of time. And that was that they believed that that person, if they spent enough time in purgatory, that they would be, they would earn their way to heaven. They would pay for their sins enough to go to heaven. Now, of course, we reject that completely. There is way too much scriptural evidence that's contrary to that. Um, so when we talk about the position of the righteous and the wicked at the intermediate state, we talk about two places, heaven and hell. Now, we can refer to them by other names, we're actually going to talk about that uh, when we get to the next point uh, because there is other references, Sheol, other things like this, um, and we'll talk about those specifically. The difficulty for us is that when we use the term heaven, we tend to associate that with all locations of the righteous after death. Are you with me on this so far? Kind of, maybe. You're not sure where I'm going? 
You all need a cup of coffee? What? Tell me. Okay, so what I'm talking about is, is that there is two places, the intermediate state, and then there is the final destination for the righteous. The final destination for the righteous. Now, this is what a lot of believers refer to as heaven. Not what the scripture refers to as heaven, but it's what believers refer to as heaven. What does Revelation tell us about what that place will be? The new, new earth. It's the new heaven and a new earth. Where will we be? You're not sure? Good, good. You got it, Bev. On the new earth. Not floating on clouds. A different place than the intermediate state. Not the same place. The different place. So there will be a new heaven and a new earth. It's not here yet. When you die, you don't go to the new earth. You don't go to the new heaven. You go to heaven, an intermediate state. Will that be your final destination? No, not your final destination. How long will you be there? We don't know. Intermediate state. I'm talking about the intermediate state. Good. I appreciate you answering. I'm talking about not the new heaven and new earth, but how long will you be in the intermediate state, heaven? We don't know, right? We don't know. So we don't know when that will happen. So here's what we do know, is that when you die now, that's where you go. When Christ returns, when the judgment comes, then new heaven and new earth. The current one is destroyed with a loud bang, that the Bible says. Everything's melted with a fervent heat. What's that look like? I don't know. Watch a movie. you probably see. <laughs> we don't know what it looks like. Here's what we do know is that there is such thing as a Big Bang. I fully believe in the Big Bang. It just hasn't happened yet. It's coming. Anyway, that was a freebie for you. So, we're talking about the intermediate state, heaven. Not the same as the new heaven and the new earth. Okay? You with me so far on this? So, when we answer questions about heaven, we're answering questions about that intermediate state. We are not talking about the final destination. That's actually the second half of this chapter that you'll see in your, in your outline. So we will talk about that. But we're asking questions about this because this is what most people talk about. This is what they think about. When you die, you go to heaven. What's that like? Well, we're answering those questions, what the Scripture says that's like. We know, we know for instance, that it's described as paradise. Right? What's my go-to example? Thief on the cross. What's Christ say today? We will be together in paradise. In paradise, describing heaven. Describing heaven. All right. So, we started, I just went back a slide here. We're in the intermediate state. We covered with the paragraphs for the intermediate state. And now we're answering questions regarding the intermediate state of believers. And the last one we just talked about is, is there time in heaven? Is there time in heaven? Now, surprisingly, you know, I gauge a little bit on how much I'm covering based on when people ask me questions. So when people ask me questions and I realize, yeah, I didn't cover that well because they ask questions, right? Nobody asked me any questions about this. So I guess we don't have to talk about it again, which is good. Uh, but let's just keep in mind this statement at the bottom because this really is relevant. Heaven is a real place with some of the same characteristics that we experience on earth. One of those characteristics is time. So, again, this whole idea in the movies of, you know, we're going to be floating on clouds, strumming harps, or uh, something, you know, we're walking around, and this looks like we're walking on a cloud kind of a thing, and all of a sudden there's a gate, and there's Peter, you know. This is all completely unbiblical. Don't base your knowledge of heaven off the movies. I don't care what movie. Don't base your knowledge of heaven off the Bible. And if a movie matches the Bible, good. Not too many. Hardly any, frankly, right? But let's remember that heaven is a real place. It's not some ethereal existence. You know, like I think I mentioned last week, some of these people that have a uh, quote-unquote out-of-the-body experience where they actually go to heaven while they're dead on earth and they, it was like I was in a cocoon of warmth and love, and I didn't want to move, I didn't want to do anything, and I was just felt so nice and happy and comfy. And then I was back in my body. 
That's not how heaven's described. It's a place where you exist. You walk around. You talk. Right? Do you eat? Oh, I don't want to answer the question yet. <laughs> Bev says, I hope so. Yeah, speaking as, as a foodie, yes, I agree. Okay. All right. How is heaven described in the Bible? Answer, it's described as the city of God and the paradise of God. And here's the key references for that. Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 24, which you see in several different questions here. Galatians 4, 24 to 31, Luke 23, 43, and 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4. I just realized this week that when I do, when I do have passages of Scripture references and I don't read those references, I need to say those references because people that are listening don't know what I'm talking about on the slide. <laughs> So I'm going to start doing that. Okay, so although the scriptures give us much more complex, a much more complex glimpse of heaven, the most frequent descriptions are contained in this answer. Ultimately, all glimpses fall into these two answers. So think about this for a second. We're talking about that when you say when you're talking about heaven and what heaven is like, ultimately it's this. It's the city of God and the paradise of God. Now, are there other aspects of it? that are not directly related to the throne of God. Yes, absolutely. But that's still where it is. It is literally the dwelling place of God. Let's go on. As God's city, heaven is the place where his temple and his throne are. It's significant to note that heaven is not just any city. It is Jerusalem. That's what the Bible calls it. What is Jerusalem? You're wondering where I'm going with this. It's a city in Israel, right? Jerusalem literally means what? The city of peace. It's the city of peace. And that is how the scriptures describe Jerusalem. We even see in the Revelation again that there is a new Jerusalem. Now, this is where some people will go astray. They'll misinterpret this. They'll isogete instead of exogete. Isogeting, it says, oh, it's new Jerusalem. See, that's how special Jerusalem over in the Middle East is. God's going to create a new one. It's not talking about that. Read the passage. It's talking about the fact that the intermediate heaven, which is described as Jerusalem in the scripture, is going to be gone. And there will be a new Jerusalem. There will be a new city of God. A new place where God will dwell. It's not going to be that intermediate state place. It's going to be a different place. That's what it's talking about. Not a reference to Jerusalem and Israel. Was Jerusalem a special city for God? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's not talking about that, okay, well, Jerusalem and Israel is now destroyed, and we must have a Jerusalem, so there'll be a new Jerusalem. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the city of God. The city of God. By the way, just to, you know, I'm going to put the answers together here, connect the dots for you. God is not dwelling in Jerusalem and Israel right now. God's not dwelling there. Because of the fact there's not a temple on the Temple Mount today does not mean that God doesn't have a... He's homeless. Right? Are you with me on this? It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. When there was a temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, did God live there? No. No. That was called his dwelling place on earth he would visit. He would visit. How? In his spirit. In his spirit. He did not go there in his physical presence. It was through his spirit or manifestations of his spirit. Now, without going too far down that path and doing a history lesson, think about the fact that we talked about last week, God in his form his physical and ethereal form is not something that we can look on. Not in these bodies. We will be destroyed. We cannot do it. So remember I talked about the example of Abraham, right? When he came to actually, in his physical presence, he came and walked through those animals. Abraham had to turn around. Abraham had to turn around. Now, we don't even know for sure if that was the complete presence of God or if it was not a manifestation of his spirit because it's also described as a lantern, a light that passed through. But we know that Abraham was commanded specifically to turn around, you can't see me. Because if you see me, you'll die. Now, was that because literally the cells in his body which were sinful 
would disintegrate? I don't know. Be a good movie. <laughs> no. Because we do see other visions where people see God sitting on his throne. Right? John, Revelation, sees God sitting on his throne. Stephen sees God sitting on his throne. Stephen at his right hand. Now, I'm sorry, Christ at his right hand. Now, Stephen dies immediately after that, right? He's stoned to death. Could he have continued to exist with that knowledge? We don't know. And God doesn't think we need to know because it's not in the scripture. But God did not come down and live in the temple in Jerusalem. He lived in that holy Jerusalem of heaven. That was his city. That's where he resided. The destruction of the temple did not mean God got banned from earth. It's not what that meant. All right? Now, do we need a temple in Jerusalem today? Not anymore. Why? You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. God is present in you with his spirit. No longer do we have to go to some place where the Holy Spirit resides. He is in you as a believer. Not often that we appreciate the significance of that. Not often. Every one from the nation of Israel was required to go at least once a year to the temple to worship God. Why? It was so special to be near the presence of the Spirit. You take it for granted? Be honest and say you do. Because we all do. We all do. And we should. It's special. Jerusalem was the capital of the promised land, and references to heaven as the new Jerusalem are rich with the descriptions of the capital of the ultimate promised land. Is there something that we can recognize at this point that there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that are symbols of what's coming? A lot of things, right? Whether it was about Christ, whether it was about his church, whether it's about the future, new heaven and new earth. The Old Testament is full of God revealing in a limited way what would come, what would happen in the future. Not completely revealed, not completely revealed to us. Agreed? Everything about the future is not in the scripture. Not all revealed to us. But more is revealed now. Is there still more being revealed? Trick question. No. No, if there was, God's word is complete. Right? Somebody has a vision of something else, then God's word wasn't finished. It wasn't complete. He's still speaking. And this is why those who would say that prophecy, literally the proclaiming of God's message today, are heretics. They're heretics. Why? They're saying that God is giving them a message for somebody else. It's not in the scripture. That's a new revelation from God. Now if you say, well, yeah, but I know this person. You know what? They are so focused on the Lord. They are so dedicated to spiritual things that when they have a word of prophecy, it must be true. Okay, you can categorize them with the Mormons, with the Jehovah's Witness, with anyone who says they have a new revelation from Christ. Because here's the bottom line. We don't accept the scriptures because Paul said it's the scriptures. And I mean Paul Sauvé sitting right here. We don't accept it's the scriptures because Paul the Apostle said it's the scriptures. No. God used the ultimate authority on earth today to determine that this was a scripture. And what's that? The church. The church determined the canon of scripture. Not a person. Not a church. The universal church. The visible church. That's what determined what was included in scripture. Which, by the way, includes Revelation. Revelation which says that anyone that adds to this is in deep trouble. Someone who says they have a message from God today does not. You can 
100% guarantee that. They can say, I feel that. I believe that. But they can't say, God told me this. Why can't they do that? Why isn't that possible today? Anybody? The word says it's closed. Good answer. Any others? That's the ultimate answer. Any others? Calvin, you got an answer? Or are you just glorifying? What was that? Who says so? The person? You see the problem? And here's the reason why. Because you are still a sinner. You're still a sinner. And no matter how perfectly you try to live, don't let this be too bad of a discouragement. You're not going to live perfectly. That's a relief, really. should be. We should recognize that no matter how hard and how much we try to live perfectly, when we sin, and we're going to sin, it's not because we were not trying. It's because we still live in the flesh. We still have a sin nature. Our hearts have been turned from stone to flesh, so you feel guilty after. You often, don't you often feel resistance to the sin before you sin? And then you sin anyway? And then you regret it? That's the heart of flesh. That's the spirit quickening you and making you alive so that you see this. But you're still a sinner. Somebody who says, I have a message from God and here's the message. It's coming from them, not from God. Why? Because God has closed his revelation. He does not need you to do for him what he is capable of doing. Now, there is the gift of encouragement. What does that look like? I'm glad you asked. Stay tuned after this this because Paul is going to do a series on spiritual gifts. And he's going to talk about the gifts. But here's what I want you to recognize that Even the gift of encouragement does not mean that God gives you a message that you're supposed to directly relate to that person. Why? Why would God need to give you a message to give to that person? Could he not speak directly to that person? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he could. Look. God doesn't need you. Can we just be honest? He doesn't need you. He wants to use you, but he doesn't need you. you, You see the difference? In other words, he can accomplish his will without you doing anything. He can use other people. He can use other means. Right? Well, what about if I feel like the Spirit's leading me to talk to this person? Well, that would be an encourager. Or that would even be you acting in an encouraging way or an exhorting way, right? To point out to somebody where they're doing something wrong. That would be the Holy Spirit working through you to do this, but what you can't do is go to them and say, God told me this. You can say, I feel like I should encourage you in this. You see the difference? In other words, you're not saying that you have the direct message from God. You're saying that God has laid on your heart to talk to that person. Is that possible? Of course it is. Yes, absolutely. We want to be sensitive to more sensitive to that than we are. More sensitive to that. But God does not need you to do his will. Does he work through people? You bet he does. Well, yeah, but if I don't tell that person they're doing the wrong thing, they're going to keep doing it. Really? Really. You ever heard of sickness, death, difficulties, struggle, illness, disease? Does God use those things? Do you control those things? Does that person control those things? No. Try as we want to, and try as hard as we do, man is not able to conquer disease, is he? He mitigates it. 
deals with it. And sometimes, unbelievably, God through his grace allows man to come up with a cure to one thing. You know, we don't have a cure for COVID. You think there's been a lot of people working on that? There has been. How about vaccinations? Those are super effective, right? All these vaccine mandates that still exist, absolutely no effect on the current variants of COVID. None. Zero. None. Have they been working on this really, really hard for years? Yes, they have. Haven't done it. How about cancer? How are we doing on that one? Here's what we figured out. If we can poison your body enough so that you almost die and then stop, we might kill the cancer before we kill the rest of you. That's where we're at. You recognize that, right? Or we'll just go in and cut it out. Or we'll use high-tech instruments to laser it out without even breaking the skin. How's that work out? It just postpones. Postpones. Why does someone who has a tumor removed have to go in every year to get checked? Because they come back. They come back. Look, you are still in the flesh. God can use his ways to make things happen without you. And he's certainly not going to give you a message that he gives to nobody else. Because you, in your pride and arrogance, can make a a statement or have a feeling and believe that God laid it on your heart. You can be really sincere in it, but the reality is it's you, not God. So if you say, well, God laid on my heart that, let's just say, for example, that the United States of America is going to fall into abject slavery and become communistic and all the Christians are going to be uh, under persecution in the United States, and it's going to happen by the end of this year. Huh. Keep that to yourself. Why? God is not using you as his prophet. He's not. Can God lay a message on your heart for you? Yes, he should. You should get those messages. Could he lay on your heart to minister to someone else? Yes, he could. But he is no longer using prophets to declare his message of judgment to other nations. And by the way, that's how he used the prophets. He didn't use a prophet to criticize public schools. And he didn't use a prophet to criticize one political candidate over another. And he didn't use a prophet to criticize one car brand over another. I mean, how ridiculous do you want to get? He didn't use prophets for those things. And yet today, there are prophets, quote-unquote, self-proclaimed prophets, who make those statements. Don't believe them. You're watching some, listen to some televangelists, and they make those kind of statements. You need to stop listening to them. Because God's word is where you need to get your truth and what he wants you to hear and what he wants you to know. The message that he has for you is through his word. And certainly, he uses preaching for elders to proclaim that message to others. That's the plan. That's the plan. That's how you learn. But as soon as an elder starts making statements that aren't in the Scripture, now it's them. It's not God. Do you you see the difference? I'm not saying this is easy, right? This is difficult. Not too often do you see an elder who strays like 180 degrees on the spot. Are you with me on this? In other words, you don't see too often that an elder will start to go into heresy and make a huge leap into heresy. They make a slight change, then they make a slight change, then they make a slight change, and they continue down this path until they're heretical. That's why we're studying doctrine. Now, you may have a hard time with some of the stuff we're studying, but here's the reality. You need to get your heart right. It's not because God's word is wrong. It's because you're wrong. You think it's not challenging for me? You think it's not challenging for brands? Paul? It is. It is. We all 
need to get our hearts more in alignment with what God says in his word and accept the truths of his word, whether we like it or not. And the truth of the matter is, for the most part, that's where we run into trouble, isn't it? We want it to be different. We want to think that we know what God wants and we should carry it out for him because he's not doing it. We should do what he says for us to do, not what we come up with. Does that make sense? God will dwell with us. We will dwell with him in the intermediate state and in our final destination. Not here, but there. Which is the significant thing that we have to look forward to, is that we will actually be living with God. With God. As the paradise of God, heaven is described as a beautiful garden. Okay, now that almost seems a little bit confusion right off the bat, right? Described as a beautiful garden. We see this in some of those references I actually already listed. Wait a minute. I thought it was a city. Well, that's a, that's a nice thing for all of us who live out here in the country. It's not just city. It's not just urban. The descriptions in Revelation 2.7 parallel the perfect perfection in the Garden of Eden Before the fall, that was a place where man had perfect fellowship with God. When God created the earth, and he created a place that he put man into, was it into a city? No. But you say, well, there was only two of them on that day. Well, that's true. (laughs) But notice that the perfection that he put him in was a garden. Right? It was a garden. It was not uh, barren. Right? It was a garden. We see references to that. It is also closely related to the promised land of Canaan, the resting place and bountiful home for the people of Israel. Heaven is the inheritance to which Christians look. Think about the descriptions to the people of Israel about Canaan. A land flowing with milk and honey. Remember this? We see the prophecies. You will enjoy vineyards that you didn't plant. You'll live in houses that you didn't build. You remember these things? This was the promise of the promised land. It would be a place where they would be able to live and enjoy the bounty of that land. So there is a reference there to houses. There is a reference there to vineyards and grapes. There is a reference there to milk and honey. So those who say, yeah, it's crazy that we drink milk. Really, the promised land is described as a place flowing with milk and honey. Well, if we eat honey, we're taking of the bees and the work that they do. Really? That's what God describes as the promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. That was a freebie, the milk and honey thing. Drives me crazy. All right. However... Those descriptions relate to the eternal state in addition to the intermediate state. The intermediate state anticipates the eternal state. While we find more descriptions of the eternal state, we see an incorporation of the intermediate into the eternal. So what am I saying there? I'm saying that we see these descriptions, this ultimate promised land that we'll go to, is really referring to the new heaven and the new earth, the ultimate or final destination. However, the intermediate state has some of that, has much of that, and it points to the final destination. Just as earth and just as the promised land for the Israelites promised toward that eventual heaven and eventually the new earth. Just as those points. The intermediate state is not the ultimate, it's not the final, but it does point to what is going to be the final. Right? So, if you were like, well, you know, when Jesus talked to the apostles, he was talking about how there's mansions, and then he was talking about there's rooms, and I think we're all going to be living in condos, like Christian condo. It'll be like a big Christian condominium, huge, gigantic. We'll all live in that. And then I've heard others preach about the new Jerusalem, and remember Jerusalem descending from heaven? But here's the thing. 
a lot of people go immediately to the assumption that that's like the heavenly condominium. I mean, they don't say it that way. But that's what they're talking about. They think all believers from all time are going to live in there. And I've actually seen debates about, I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, you get into this stuff, you start going down a rabbit trail. Anyway, here I am. I've seen people preach about, like argue that, well, non-believers will talk about how the new Jerusalem is impossible for all the believers through time to live there. All right, so how many believers have there been through all time? Lots. Good answer. That's a good answer. Accurate. Anybody have any ideas? Guesses. There are estimates. There are estimates. Go ahead. Go ahead. Big guess. 60 billion. Okay, that's a good guess. Anybody else? 30. Oh, okay, good. That's better. You know more than 30. So the estimates are about 28 to 30 billion. True time. Now, how do you estimate that? It's difficult. It's difficult. But they do it based on percentages, based on the times, based on people. You've got to remember that we have way more people now than we did 2,000 years ago versus 4,000 years ago versus 6,500 years ago when they were two. <laughs> so the population has shifted. But the point is, if there is that many people, this is what they base it on. They go to that number, they say, okay, 28 billion. Well, let's be conservative. Let's say that, nah, you know, probably wasn't that. Let's say it's 25 billion. How are 25 billion people going to fit in this? And so somebody, I've actually heard debates on this, that they'll come up with these numbers of how many square feet per person they can have in the New Jerusalem, assuming that the New Jerusalem has levels and there's so much feet per height or per floor in the New Jerusalem and you have to have so much room for streets and passageways and all that stuff. Right? The people, really, they spend time doing this. Anyway, they come up with this idea that, well, look, there's way more room in this heavenly city than all the believers throughout all of time could fit. The problem is the Bible doesn't say we're all going to live there. That is the, where the throne of God will be. You're definitely going to be there. But it doesn't mean that you're going to live there. You're not going to necessarily live in the condo. Are you with me on this? But the assumption is, oh, well, I, well now, then they had to come up with, well, how can you, oh, that can't be real because everybody couldn't fit. Well, yeah, they can. Let me do all the coming for you. Figure out the thing. They're missing the bigger picture. You don't have to live in there. Do you think it'd be okay to live in a shack in the new earth? I think it would. I think it would. They say, well, God wouldn't have me living in a shack. Really? Watch out. <laughs> yes, he could. <laughs> so we see these signs. We see these examples in the scripture that talk about the two different places. The intermediate state and the final destination. Often we see the references to heaven as referring to the intermediate state. Because that's really what, frankly, think about this. We certainly see the prophecy of what's going to happen in the final state. But the intermediate state is where everybody is, it's what you're worried about. Right? When you die, where are you going to go? What's going to happen to you? What's it going to be like? That's why we're answering these questions. Because that's, you, you want to know those things. All right, what is the blessed condition of the spirits of believers in heaven? So we're talking about your soul, your spirit. What is the blessed condition of the spirits of believers in heaven? Answer, they are made unchangeably and perfectly holy and happy in themselves. Here's the references. Hebrews 12.23, Luke 23.43, 2 Corinthians 5.8, Philippians 1.23, and Revelation 14.13. What are we talking about here? Well, first of all, there's four assertions that are made in this answer. So let me go back here. So here's the answer. They're made unchangeably and perfectly holy and happy in themselves. All right? Now, that should be encouraging to you, but let's look at what that means. First of all, it's unchangeable. So the blessing, the blessing attained in heaven, like salvation, is part of the unchangeable sovereign purpose of God. In other words, once you die and you go to heaven, you can't get kicked out. Amen. Is right. You can't get kicked out. If free will were the source of salvation and not God's sovereign will and decree, then heaven could be changed. Those who will be there would be controlled by man, not God. 
look, I've even talked to some of the guys and asked some questions, and I've seen some questions and answers on YouTube also, which is a good source for that, of some of the guys who are like the most stalwart, reformed teachers and preachers today. And here's what they will say. On the side, not in a message. Free will is difficult. Free will versus the sovereign will of God is difficult. Why is it difficult? Because we have a problem with it. That's why it's difficult. Not difficult to God. Is God in control or is not in control? Well, of course, you have to answer. He's in control. Right? But the implications of that control are huge. Mind-blowing, really. You mean my loved one died with God at the helm? Yeah. Yep. You mean that this horrible thing happened in this other country? And God's plan was for that to happen? Yep. Yeah, that's what the scripture tells us. And yet... Whosoever will may come. Right? Whosoever will may come. The difficulty, and you know this, is that if we accept both, how do we rectify the situation? How do we deal with this idea? Well, it is very clear. And the scripture tells us, anyone who believes on Jesus Christ and repents will be saved. They will be literally born again. The problem is this. It's the human heart. Because the scripture also tells us that in sin, your heart is stone. How do you get it to turn from stone? The Spirit has to turn it from stone to flesh, upon which you immediately recognize your guilt and repent. Who turns it from heart, this heart from stone to flesh? The Spirit. So what if the Spirit doesn't turn your heart from stone to flesh? Well, if you can overcome that and believe, you're saved. Just that you can't. Well, that's not fair. Really, tell God that's not fair. That's what you're talking about. Tell him. Well, my grandfather, why didn't God change his heart from stone to flesh? It's up to God. It's up to God. If it was up to man, he wouldn't do it. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Why? The scripture doesn't use this language, so I'm giving my Brian Irvin translation. Because a dead man can't grab the paddles and shock his heart. The man whose heart is stone cannot turn it into flesh. He's unable to. He's dead in his trespasses and sin. Who makes him alive? And yet you have made yourselves alive. No, he makes you alive. He does. See, if God's will is not sovereign, if his command of what's going to happen is not what's followed extensively and completely in creation, then we have no assurance whatsoever of eternity. Why? If it's not God's plan for who's going to be there, then you could mess up. You could get kicked out. You could blow it. But it is his plan. And it is his will. And it is his decree. So with his sovereign will and decree, heaven cannot be changed. You cannot be removed. The rules can't change when you, quote unquote, get to the pearly gates. By the way, there are pearly gates into the New Jerusalem. 
not to the intermediate state. So if you think, well, when I die, I'm going to go to the pearly gates, right? No. Nope. Scripture doesn't talk about that. There are pearly gates. Remember this? The gates to the city, 12 gates, all carved from pearl. Our belief in the unchanging decree of God for salvation makes his decree for the glory of heaven unchangeable. This is echoed by the scripture teaching that heaven has foundations and its architect and builder are God. This is not a heaven that we imagine, create, come up with, design. It is what God has. He's built its foundations. By the way, whose names are on the foundation stones? Twelve foundation stones. Whose names? The apostles. Does that have any implications to you? It should. It's not the 12 tribes. It's the apostles. Those who were at the foundation of his church, their names are on the foundation stones of heaven. Those who are, want to shift our focus to Israel and talk about the, the church is just part of Israel have missed the point. Israel was a sign of what was to come, which is the church. That's what Christ said. Number two, it is a condition of perfect holiness. So Hebrews 12.23 tells us that man will be made perfect in heaven. This is part of our promise of our eternal reward. This is also required because heaven is a place. Let's see if I have that. No. Heaven is a place where God himself dwells. We cannot be admitted into the presence of God without having that perfect holiness. We see that in Revelation 21.27 and Genesis 3. So think about that for a second. We know in heaven we are going to literally be in the presence of God. We know from Scripture that's true. We also know from Scripture that we cannot see God in our sinful state. What changed? You were made holy. That's what changed. How can you not sin anymore? Because you were made holy. You no longer will sin. We talked about that last week. You're no longer going to be in a place where you can sin. You'll be made holy, righteous, set apart. That is the relief. That's the relief. You, you won't have to struggle with sin anymore. It won't, it won't come to your mind. You won't be tempted. We can't even... We can't fathom that. I mean, we really can't. We can't... It's hard to wrap your mind around this idea that you won't even have a thought that's not the right kind of thought. It'll be a righteous thought. Wow. There's all kinds of jokes I can make at this point about things you won't think about that are bad. But anyway, we don't go that way. <coughs> Just understand that you'll be made holy, and that's what it's talking about, condition of perfect holiness. We cannot be with Christ with our ethical, with our ethical perfection. We will no longer... We are, in some sense, we will no longer walk by faith, but by sight. So think about that for a second. It's not you and your desire to be holy that will make you holy. It's because God will make you holy. And that's how you'll be holy. <clears throat> we won't walk by faith. We'll walk by sight, Second Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Think about that for a second. Right now, of course, you walk by faith. You believe you trust, right? You won't have to do that anymore. And isn't this, I mean, frankly, can you just, I think you can, you can think through this and admit this, that most of the time you sin because you're not walking by faith. Right? You're not, you're not actually walking by faith. You veer a little. You know, Pilgrim's Progress, very great allegory examples of that. You stray from the path of righteousness. How? Well, you're not walking by faith anymore. But now we won't have to do that. Now it'll be by sight. By sight. You will not have to believe that Jesus Christ is real. You'll see him. You won't have to believe that God is real. You'll see him. Wow. It's a condition of perfect happiness. When we live in the paradise of God, which is the city of God, with the song of God, 
will be perfectly happy. Let me go back. All right. Ultimately, this is happiness. Look, there's other descriptions of heaven about things that are going to happen, the new earth, about things that are going to happen. We're not going to go too far down that path. But here's the point. You will truly be happy if you're sitting at the feet of God. That's what the scripture says. So you do nothing else except sit at the feet of God. You'll be happy. That's it. Well, what about that whole thing you said about maybe having a little convo with David and Solomon? Yeah, that'd be cool. But you will still be happy if you don't have that convo. Get you going a little bit. I want you to think about this. Think about the closest person to you that you've lost. The one you love the most that you've lost. The one that you can't wait until you can see them in heaven and talk to them again and embrace them. Now think about this. You could go to heaven and never see that person and be happy and not regret it. And not regret it. Now, will you be happy to see that person? Yes! Will God let you see that person? Probably. Doesn't say that. Scripture doesn't say you're going to see everyone that you knew. Doesn't say that. Well, maybe after a couple million years, you'll run into them. It's an incomplete condition. It is only in their spirits that believers will be happy and holy. They are not completely happy because they are not in their final form. So there is something that's still missing, and that's your physical form, your body. Now, you think about this for a second. If the ultimate perfection, which some religions teach, particularly Far Eastern religions, that true perfection is just for you to be perfect in your spirit, there would not be resurrected bodies, there would not be glorified bodies, there would not need to be a physical new heaven and new earth. So that's how we know that's not true. Because God's ultimate plan for you is to be reunited with your physical body. That's where you will spend eternity, in your body. Just as Christ is already in his glorified body, and he will be in that body for eternity. That's God's plan. God didn't make Adam a spirit. He made him in a body. You with me on this? So, you'll be happy in heaven, but your ultimate happiness will be attained when you are reunited with your body. You'll be complete then. You'll be complete. Okay, well, we've got to stop there. What do these spirits do in heaven? Well, we'll back up so you can want to come back next week. So, question number eight about what heaven is like we'll start with next week. Let's close in a word of prayer.